Welcome back, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com, Tennis on Air with Andy Zoden. Uh, as many of you know, I love to do those Where Are They Now segments, and I was able to recently get caught up with Peter Rennert, formerly a top 10 ranked junior in the United States, growing up at the famed Port Washington Academy, along the likes of John McEnroe, Mary Carrillo, and the late great Vita Scarolitis, among many, many other great players, went on to college stardom, playing for the Stanford Cardinal, was a part of three national championship teams, made an appearance in an NCAA singles final, and had a nice pro career as well, a couple of quarterfinal uh, appearances in the Australian Open, as well as a top 10 ranking in the world in doubles. Peter, it's so great to get caught up with you after all these years here on KickServe Radio with us. Uh, thanks, Andy. It's uh, great to be here, and I appreciate that uh, you're interested to uh, hear where I am I now. you got some cool things going on, but I want to take a look back first, because you grew up at that Port Washington Academy, which then led to being able to play at Stanford. You were part of three national championship teams, but you start out as a walk-on at Stanford, only to become the number one player on the number one team in the country. Talk about that evolution a little bit. Uh, yeah, that was... Uh quite a surprise even to me. Uh, basically, my first year, because of Title IX, they only had five scholarships. There were three of us who were recruited, but there was no scholarship money, so technically I was a walk-on. Won all my early challenge matches, lost my later ones, ended up the number seven player, which meant I didn't play singles. Third doubles meant I played doubles. And uh, that's the way the year went, and it was a good year. It was great. We won the national championship, and it was really cool from the position I was in to, uh, you know, look up to the guys who were one and two and three, the guys who we depended on to win matches. And then came back the next year with the same exact team. No one graduated, plus we added Johnny Mack, which meant I was now number eight, which meant I wouldn't travel. But fortunately, I won all my fall challenges matches, which put me in a position to, in the January when we play them, to play a match to make the starting traveling team uh, and if I lost it I was off the team it was that simple and so it was a rather important match and I won that match actually 6-2 6-2 which was a great relief and then went on to win a lot more matches and the guy in front of me started losing so I got moved up and then the guy in front of him got hurt and I got moved up and I ended up clinching the team championship that year against UCLA in the finals uh, the team finals, and our team went undefeated, 24-0. and And it was just a super exciting year. And then the three guys in front of me turned pro or graduated, and suddenly from January to May I went from being possibly number eight and off the team to number one on the number one team. So uh, an amazing four months, which pretty much turned around my whole tennis life. I, I probably would, I don't know that I would have been a professional tennis player if those four months didn't happen. Alabama just won its fifth national championship in football in the last nine years, and they are clearly the gold standard as far as college football programs are concerned. And what you're describing really makes it as though Stanford was, and maybe to a large degree, is still considered to be uh, the gold standard for, for collegiate men's tennis. It's not often that you have a guy, and I'm referring to Matt Mitchell, who wins the NCAAs in 1976. And then, as you mentioned, along comes John McEnroe. Suddenly the dynamic of that team changes, and a former NCAA champion just the year before is now playing number four on his own team? Yeah. Dick Gould swears by the challenge match. Everybody's got to play him. You've got to win him. Uh, nobody is exempt when the NCAAs or not. So John McEnroe was in the top 20 in the world. He certainly deserved a shot to play Matt for who would play number one. John won it. 
And the way it worked was if you lost the match, you had to play the guy below you. You have to earn your spot. And Matt lost to Bill Mays, who was neck and neck with him the year before, but, you know, he lost a tough, I think it was like 6-4 in the third, so he was three, which meant now the number four guy had to get a shot. And the number four guy ended up winning the match, and Matt ended up playing four. That's right. And uh, to Matt's credit, he knew he was not ready to turn pro, emotionally or mentally, but he won the NCAAs, so technically everything said he should. And, you know, he ended up having a good pro career, a solid pro career, but I, I know that probably was a very difficult time for him. And it tells you how strong we were. It's amazing to look back at the fact that Stanford tennis was effectively just a developmental stepping stone into pro tennis. Here you've got a guy coming to play for your team, John McEnroe, who's already been to the semifinals of Wimbledon, for crying out loud, and here he is coming to play for your team as if you guys needed to get stronger. <laughs> that made us stronger. We went undefeated that year, but I'll tell you what, we almost didn't. We had a match down at UCLA. Uh, we were down 3-1 in singles, and John and I were the only two guys on the court. I was playing Fritz Buning, also from the Port Washington Tennis Academy. Yeah, sure. I was down nine match points. Oh, I won seven six six seven seven six five four in all three tiebreakers in the days when we used to have the nine point tiebreaker, and then that made it three two. And then John was on the court against Elliot Telcher, another former top ten in the world player, and John was down six two five three match point because we had no ad scoring. John had a backhand cross court winner to break, held serve. He ended up winning the match. So instead of losing five one in singles, we were three all, and then we rolled them in the doubles, won all three. Uh, and went on to be undefeated that year. So fun to, to look back at the glory days of college tennis when it really was uh, at the height of its powers. But then you go on and you have a nice, solid pro career. And you, I mean, more than solid. I mean, a quarter, couple quarterfinal appearances at the Australian. You're a top 10 player in the world in doubles. But then, Peter, things shut down on you prematurely. By age 24, not quite 25, you really started to experience a lot of pain on the court, huh? Yeah. I mean, my first injury was actually at 21. I tore a tricep, came back from that, and then took a wrong step on a court in Italy, uh, hurt my back, and then ended up with sciatica and uh, down both legs, pain all the time. And I just, I, you know, I did everything I could to get on the court. I told all the docs, the trainers, just give me whatever you need to do, get me on the court. But I did that for a couple of years and then slowly began to decline because I just physically couldn't do it anymore. And now you've developed this telos system, the effortless life operating system, which evolved largely from what you felt like was your body sort of giving out on you prematurely. And now you want players in this day and age and athletes in this day and age to be able to learn from what you feel like your own body taught you. Exactly. Uh, basically, 35 years ago. Uh, so that tells you I'm 59. Right. Uh, yeah, my body broke down, and I didn't know what happened. I had to figure out what happened, and I'm still evolving and refining the process, but this life operating system, which I applied to tennis, which is extraordinarily simple, and what I think is the single most important thing that we as teachers or coaches can teach kids, and that is how to get their mind and their body to work together in harmony to do whatever it is they want to do. And just to make it clear why we're, how we're not doing that is we're systematically taught not to listen to our bodies. The way we eat food, which is, you know, finish dinner and clear your plate. 
even though the body signal is I'm full, you know, right. that's one way. Or just dig in, be a man, give 110%, leave it all out on the court. And so the body, we keep pushing the body further and further, and we're not aware that there's actually a more efficient, more precise, more enjoyable, more sustainable way to achieve excellence. And do you think that from what you're seeing on the tour right now, that there are a lot of players that are supremely talented, but that are not necessarily in touch with what you're trying to describe here. And as a result, the physicality of the sport is causing players to break down before their time uh, outside of maybe Roger Federer and, and maybe the Williams sisters who we've seen, you know, play into their mid and late thirties. But a lot of players don't get that far, do they? No, and, 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 you know, you bring up a point. One, I mean, we can separate into certain categories. You have the professional athletes. So if you're talking about the pro athlete, they're accepting a certain amount of unnecessary stress and wear and tear that's above and beyond. But even they, the way they train, they think they have to go there and practice. And I, I now know that's not true. And to the kids who were in high school, I, I have a 10 year old girl who told me when I said, you know, to her, would you like to be able to swim faster? She said, yes. I said, great. Would you like it to be easier? She said, no. Interesting. I, went, I, I was <laughs> totally surprised. I was like, no? She goes, no. My coach has taught me if I have any energy left at the end of practice, I didn't try hard enough. I don't agree with that, and I want to show kids, adults, professional athletes, anyone who wants to know that there's another way to get stuff done that means you won't have to limp when you're 40. And there's a number of guys you can tell. I don't want to use names, but there are people on the tour now you know, they're trading their physical well-being for titles, for Grand Slam titles. I don't know how conscious they are of the trade they're making. So really what I want to do is shine a light on the process and say, look, if you do this particular process, here's the natural side effects of a stress and recover system that's based on time. is fatigue, exhaustion, breakdown, which is an illness or injury, burnout. Unavoidable. You can't not get those results if you plug into that system. And then I have a different life operating system, which I call the effortless life operating system. And in that system, the side effects are joy, increased energy, well-being, satisfaction, meaning. And I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but I am going to say that there's a difference in that if I had known the choices, I would have made different choices. I didn't know, and now I shine a light at it so that people can choose how they want, what they want to do, how they want to do it. And it's not as simple as just to say it's a marathon, it's not a sprint, something cliche like that. There, there, there seems to be more to it. You and I have, have talked off air and I've been very intrigued. And, and I have to admit, Peter, that the more you've talked about the effortless life operating system, I have in my mind envisioned Roger Federer. And I've envisioned the way he has gone about the way he plays the sport of tennis and the way he lives his life. And I do know that he's been pretty intelligent with respect to something like schedule management. Oh, yeah, schedule management. He's, he's, he made it clear that longevity was a top priority from when he first got on the scene. So he makes choices accordingly. A simple way of saying it is if you have the feeling of being in a hurry, if I have the feeling of being in a hurry, I'm off course. My goal, one of the goals of Telos is to be able to move full speed without having the feeling of being in a hurry, to be fully engaged, fully relaxed, under increasing pressure. And essentially, I just described the zone to you, but the zone, there's no mystery on how to get in there. It's, I go there every day, all day. I fall out a lot, but I know how I got in. It's, it's a simple one, two, three. 
Sounds to me, Peter, like there are some similarities with the principles that were espoused by uh, the great John Wooden uh, with his pyramid of success. And, and one of those building blocks was be quick, but don't hurry. I don't know that that's the exact uh, term. Yeah, well, that, that makes sense to me. Again, a lot of it's language and how you connect to it. But yes. Well, he understood winning is a side effect. It's not the result. You don't have to go after winning. Winning happens. If you do all the other things, winning just happens. Well, people that would maybe want to know a little bit more directly from you, Peter, how could they find out a little bit more about the TLO system? Because I think that there are a lot of players and a lot of parents and a lot of coaches of players that might want to uh, to delve into this a little bit more because it sure makes sense to me. Well, the website is in process, www.telos.today. That's not .com, that's .today. That probably won't be up and running until about June, or they could email me at peter at telos.today. I have a couple of different booklets that have, you know, give a better explanation if they want more information. Uh, they could reach out to me directly, and uh, I'm happy to have a conversation and share what I've learned and see if it's of any value to, to them. Well, and I want our listeners to also know that you and I will be talking about bringing you out to Colorado to get you in front of our, our pros and some of our players out here uh, with one of our conferences or educational days, and I will look forward to that. Another topic that I wanted to get to today, Peter, was the fact that we're starting to see more and more about the universal tennis rating system, the UTR system, which really makes a lot of sense with respect to connecting players of like ability levels. And that might be the only thing they have in common, but it really does make a lot of sense with respect to being able to put players together within a closer proximity than some of our other ranking and rating systems might have been able to do. Talk a little bit about that and why you like it so much. Okay. I like it from the day I met. Dave Howell was a teaching pro out of New England, and my son was playing tournaments. And uh, so I was there when it started, and he was hand-entering all the results. The system's super simple. It just says you have to have a competitive match. Competitive match means you win at least seven games. 6-4, 6-3 is considered a competitive match. 6-3, 6-3 is not. 6-0, 6-0 does nobody any good. The idea is that you then get ranked and you get to have algorithms for these points based on whether or not you play a competitive match. They have 30 matches to get what your universal tennis ranking is. And then you could be a 12-year-old kid, but there's no real good 12-year-olds around you. Well, within 30 minutes, you can be sure there's a whole lot of 35-year-olds, 20-year-olds, college kids. I mean, there's different people who are your level. So a UTR tournament, in its essence, with people of the same level in the same tournament, thereby removing one of the big barriers to promoting and growing the game of tennis, which is just the economic reality that right now guys who have a lot of money can chase points and get ranked a lot higher, and guys who don't can't get the comp competition they need. And it ties back to really what you brought up at Washington Tennis Academy when I got on the phone. Right. The reason why we had 10 people in the top 100 in the world, five in the top 10 in the world, come out of one little academy because when I grew up, it was the only indoor tennis academy in the tri-state area, which meant all the good players, Peter Fleming, you didn't mention, Gary Reiner, Jim Landis, Ricky Meyer. There was an endless amount. They all came there. Harry Hopman was one of the coaches, Tony Palafox, Bob wow. Brett. Uh, you know, it just it went on and on. We were all in the same place. And if you put all that talent in the same place, all the different levels can find each other, and then people get better quicker. They learn stuff. You're, a 12-year-old is going to learn something from a hacker who's 30 but knows how to win a match, but they're not going to learn playing another 12-year-old. 
That's a great point. This UTR is catching fire, and it's an amazing thing to see what technology has done to our sport. Okay, before I let you go, Peter, I would be I'd be drawn and quartered if I didn't ask for a good Mac story. And I think I heard one where you guys were playing doubles together. I believe it may have been in Europe. I don't know. I may be wrong, but the only way you guys were able to qualify to even play in the match was that you had to exchange socks. Yeah, <laughs> Queens Club the finals of the doubles. Fifteen hundred dollar fine if you're not wearing the same outfit. It had been rain, so John. It was John and I, and John had to play the semi earlier in the day, and he was playing Jimmy in the finals, and then we played Hank Fister and Victor Amaya in the doubles final, and we're in the locker room, and they were going to find us. Uh, they told us the rule. John told them what he thought of the rule. Of course. And then John and I got our Stanford heads together and decided, well, if you give me one of your black socks and I give you one of my white socks, we will match. And so we went on the court with one, one black, one white. We didn't get fined, won the tournament, and... Uh, Enjoyed a beer afterwards. Fister and Amaya, now that's a couple of big, big serving guys. I mean, you took them out. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was a fun match. I loved playing doubles. I really think I got as good as I got because early on I just found out in doubles that, like, everybody was actually insecure. Yeah. You know, I could beat anyone. I wasn't afraid of anyone. I didn't think anyone was better than me. So, and when you, uh, it's a big thing. Belief is a big thing. When you find out, wow, that guy is insecure and doesn't like that, you know, then you think, wow, well, I guess I can beat him. And the next thing you know, that leads to another one and another one, another one, and then suddenly you're there. Yeah, it's all about confidence, and I got to believe that if you were to buy into and really gravitate toward your Telo system, that uh, that confidence with your sustainability might go a long way toward toward having better results as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the the essence for Telos, you've got to know who you are. You've got to know your body. You've got to you've got to be an optimum learner. The fastest you the, you want to grow faster. You've got to learn, and if you're not paying attention to what's going on in that mind-body connection, then you know things are going to happen more slowly. My guest today on a Where Are They Now segment of KickServeRadio.com has been the one and only Peter Rennert, former Stanford standout, a couple of times a quarterfinalist in the Australian Open, which is going on as we tape. Peter, so great to catch up with you. Look forward to having you out to Colorado and wish you continued success with the Telos program and everything else that you're doing as an educator we're, we're lucky to have you teaching our kids these days i appreciate that thanks andy and uh have fun in australia it's a it's an amazing place and i really look forward to coming out to colorado because i love to share what i do and uh, i have a feeling i'm going to exceed expectations when you finally get to experience it well i'm looking forward to australia and looking forward to having you out here in colorado and we will set that up real soon peter rennert ladies and gentlemen joining us today on kickserveradio.com